So this morning, I hope that you are ready uh, for a message about who Jesus is. Uh, we always want to talk about who Jesus is. We want to help you understand Jesus better, uh, grow in your relationship with Jesus, become more dependent upon Him, understand His love, understand who God is. And uh, we've started a new series on the Gospel of John. If you were here last week, you would know that uh, we, we spoke about how John saw Jesus. John knew Jesus. John was in love with Jesus. John had this revelation of who Jesus was. And uh, it's why the Gospel of John is so powerful. He says at the end of the book in John uh, chapter 20, he says, I have written these things so that you may believe. And that in believing that you would have eternal life. So how many of you were here last week for the beginning of the Gospel of John? Come on, we're so good. We're so good to be encouraged. If you weren't here last week, you can go onto our website uh, and uh, the messages are all uploaded there. Also on SoundCloud. If you go soundcloud.com forward slash anchor dash Joburg, or if you just search anchor Joburg on SoundCloud, uh, we've made a playlist for the Gospel of John. So every morning when we do a message like this, uh, it'll go up onto the playlist this week. And if you happen to miss any of them, then uh, you can catch up, you can share it with your friends. Um, and we just want people to know what John wanted people to know, which is who Jesus is. John knew Jesus. He had a deep understanding and a revelation of who Jesus is. I want to encourage you this morning to get to know Jesus. Not the things that have been said about Jesus, but Jesus himself. Personally, individually, you and Jesus an honest, authentic relationship with your Savior, with your Creator. So when John says that he knows Jesus, he's not just piecing together a couple of vague assertions about him from an interview he watched on YouTube or, or a book that he once read about Jesus. He's saying, I know, I have this deep inner understanding and revelation, like my heart has been opened up, my understanding has been enlightened, and I have seen who Jesus is. And that's what God wants for each of us. To experience the truth, the essence, the depth of revelation of this person called Jesus and, and what he has done for us. This is like a very deep inner awakening that we go through. That's what it's like when you see Jesus. You're blind until you see him. In 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4, it's speaking about those who don't know Jesus, those who have uh, been blinded. And it, and it says in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4, it says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So unbelief, not knowing who Jesus is, not believing in who Jesus is, is essentially spiritual blindness. One scripture says, seeing, they do not see. And hearing, they do not hear. I remember once playing touch rugby with my cousins. We were on our way to a holiday somewhere. And it was already late, it was already at, at, at night, and we decided we would play touch rugby in the yard while we waited, me and a couple of my cousins. And um, we, uh, we were playing, and it was all fun and games. There were no lights, garden, dark. We were like, hey, let's just go for it. And it was all fun and games until I met a bench with my shin. 
right? I, I nearly broke the front slat of a bench with my shin. Can you just imagine running? I was running for a try. You're running flat out. You think there's no one in front of you. You think you're going to score this try. You're going all the way and you run into a bench. Okay, that's what happened to me. And I remember the pain of that moment and thinking to myself, I am never going to run around in the dark ever again. It hurts. That's what it's like living your life without really knowing who Jesus is. You're ultimately running around in the dark, hoping not to collide with something. You don't know where you're going. You don't know what's in front of you. You're in the dark about who God is. And what this scripture actually says is that the, the ruler of this world, the enemy, Satan himself, deceives people and blinds their minds so that they would not see what? The light. The light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ. When you see, you see God's glory. We have seen his glory. We were once blind, but now we see. So people who don't know Jesus, they haven't seen the light of the gospel. They haven't seen the glory of Christ. They haven't seen God. They haven't seen this image of God. They haven't seen what what Jesus is like. They, they didn't see Jesus the way that John saw Jesus. So ultimately, they don't know who God is. They have no idea about his goodness. They have all these false assumptions about him and who he is, these, these, these skewed perceptions. They don't have a clue about the grace of God and the goodness of God and the sovereignty of God and the power of God. And every time they open their mouths to make an assertion about Jesus, they speak in ignorance because they don't know Jesus. They don't know God. They don't know the truth that is in him. So John says this, we finished on this verse last week, but John 1 verse 14, he says this. He says, and the word, Jesus, became flesh and he dwelt amongst us and we have seen his glory, glory as of, there it is, right? He came to show us who God is and we have seen his glory. We have seen, our eyes have opened up, our blindness, those who sat in darkness have seen a great light, a big light has gone on, our blindness was taken away, and we see the glory of God, we see Jesus. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the Father. And what do we see when we see Jesus? He's full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. I'm praying that even this morning, God would open our eyes a little bit wider and shine a bit more of the light of his glory, the glory of the gospel into our hearts. So we would see a little bit more and trust a little bit deeper in the grace and the truth that is encapsulated in the person of Jesus. I'm gonna go ahead and pray for us. And then we're gonna go through a few more verses in John. Let's just pray. Jesus, we come to you this morning. We see your glory this morning. We, we are touched and fascinated and overwhelmed by the glory of your gospel, Jesus. We thank you, Father, for what you did for us on the cross by sending your own son to die in our place. You demonstrated your love for us in this way. Father, we thank you this morning that, that we can all receive more of an understanding of who Jesus is, that we can become more intimately acquainted with the wonders of his person. Father, we're all about Jesus this morning. We thank you for sending your own son. We thank you for revealing your own heart and your love and your kindness towards us through Jesus and through your word. And we just humble ourselves before it this morning. We're grateful for it, Jesus. We're grateful for the way that you have shone your light into our lives. 
We give you all the glory and the praise and the honor this morning in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. So the world cannot see God. It cannot know God. It cannot see God. Whenever people, experts, atheists, guys that obviously have agendas against religion and, and, and faith and belief get up and they make certain statements about God, it's like asking a blind man to describe a sunset that he's never seen. But we, as John says in John 1.14, have seen his glory. And ultimately what Jesus was saying is, this is what God is like. We've seen the glory of the Father. When we see Jesus, we see the Father. Uh, Philip and some of the disciples came to Jesus and said, to, said at the end of Jesus' life, and it, and it almost frustrated Jesus that they asked this question because they come to Jesus and they say, uh, Jesus, when will you show us the Father? And Jesus, he stands back and he goes, I've been with you so long. Do you still not get it? And he says these words. He says, those who have seen me have seen the Father. Our world did not know what God was like until Jesus came to show us the Father. And when we saw him, we saw that he was full of grace and truth. So the, the question that I want to answer today is, what do we see when we see Jesus? When we look at Jesus, when we read the stories about Jesus, what is it that we see? Because when we get this wrong, something happens. We begin to skew the image of God. We begin to miss the heart of God. We begin to judge others on behalf of God because we don't know who God really is. When we get this wrong, what ultimately happens is that we start creating God in our own image. Blaise Pascal once said this, he said, God created man in his image and then man returned the favor. We start seeing God through our limited perspective, through our prejudice, through uh, our skewed perceptions. Brennan Manning, um, who's just one of my favorite authors of all time, he said this, he says, we often make God in our own image and he winds up to be as fussy, rude, narrow-minded, legalistic, judgmental, unforgiving, and unloving as we are. If you worried about a God who is, who is out to get you and a God who doesn't love you completely and a God that will drop you in the midst of a storm and a God that's gonna disappoint you, I wanna tell you this morning, you need to look to Jesus. You need to be reminded of who this God is that we serve, his faithfulness and his goodness. Otherwise, we'll start seeing God in our own image. And this is why I'm, this is something I'm genuinely really passionate about in my life. It's one of the reasons why we decided to start Anchor Church. It's because I want to help people understand who Jesus really is. We want the city to know who Jesus really is, that, that he is for us, that he is a God who demonstrated his love for us, that he is committed, that he is faithful, that he is true. We want people to, to not just be hardened in their hearts about God and about Jesus. 
and I'll never forget when I was in high school, I read a book by, by Max Lucado. And, uh, and in this book, he, he speaks about how he used to go to church as a child with his dad. And his dad was a mechanic and worked real hard and always had calluses on his hand. And kind of as a kid, back then, kids would sit in the main service. When I used to go to church as a child, we used to go to Sunday school for an hour before church and then sit with our parents in church. So I could just, I could just see Max as a young boy sitting on these hard wooden pews next to his dad, trying to listen to the preacher and being completely bored, not knowing what's being spoken about. And, uh, and what he said he used to do is he used to reach into his mom's bag and he would pull out a safety pin because she used to have safety pins in her bag. And what he would do is that he was so fascinated by these calluses on his dad's hands that he would push the safety pin into the calluses and just see that, I mean, it doesn't even affect his dad, um, doesn't even feel it because of the hardened skin. But he says on one occasion, he wanted to see how far he could go before his dad actually felt something. And he pushed it and pushed it and pushed it. And at one point, it obviously went through. And all of a sudden, his dad shouted out in the middle of church. Like, oh my, the preacher stopped preaching. Everybody looked around. And he's, he, you know, he just looked at his son like, why are you sticking this pin in my hand? And he said, but now as a pastor, he still ultimately does the same thing. Because week after week, people come into church that have hearts and what he wants to do is he wants to take the safety pin of the gospel and he wants to press it in through all the dead layers of skin all the numbness all the calloused experiences and push them past that so that people can feel again how jaded have we become as people in this world so cynical so sarcastic so unbelieving and what I'm passionate about is taking the pin of the gospel and pushing it in so that people can, can be awakened to the truth of the goodness and the grace and the fullness of Jesus to reawaken wonder in our hearts and in our lives. Paul writes in Ephesians 5 verse 13, he says, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Are we moving through our lives asleep, numb, calloused? Paul says, when the light of Jesus shines into your life, when you see the glory of God, when you experience His grace, you wake up from your sleep. You're raised from your death because Jesus shines on you. Man, I, I'd repeat this scripture 20 times. It's so good. But this is our message to the world. Wake up, you who sleep. Come forth, you who are dead. Christ will shine on you. He'll open your eyes. He'll reawaken wonder in your life. He'll fill you with his spirit. He will satisfy the deepest longings of your soul. Awake, O sleeping city. Awake, O sleeping people. And Christ will shine on you. That's our message to the city, is it not? That's what we're here to proclaim. We have found the Messiah. We have seen Jesus and he brings good news. So John carries on, verse 15. If you have your Bibles this morning, John 1 and verse 15. 
And here it talks about John the Baptist and it says, John bore witness about him. Our message to the city, awake, O sleeper. John bore witness. John came and he said, I've seen something. You, you can't witness about something. If you were in a, a, a trial that you were brought into court to be a witness, you couldn't be a witness of something that you haven't seen, right? That doesn't make sense. So when John was a witness, when we witness to our city, we're declaring what we've seen. It's something that we know. We have seen his glory and we declare it. John bore witness about him and cried out. He cried out, this was he of whom I said. He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. John's going, yes, he's alive right now. It was actually John the Baptist's cousin. He's like, he was born physically, but he's here physically, but he was before me. He was before Abraham. He was in the beginning, he was the word. He was the creator of heaven and earth. He says this, for from his fullness, don't miss that, his fullness, every fiber of his being, the essence of who he is, the very core of Jesus, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Listen to this, no one has ever seen God the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. No one has seen God, but Jesus came to make him known. And from his fullness, we received grace upon grace. This is the essence of Jesus, the very fabric of his person. It is the fabric of truth. And we received grace upon grace. So when we see Jesus, what do we see? We see God's grace. That is his glory. That is his glory. That's, that's why we serve him. Because he's not a vengeful, angry God who seeks to, to just destroy people's lives. He's not distant. He's not disassociated or dormant. He's, 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 he's full of grace and truth. He's involved. That's the grace of God. It's the glory of God that we witness. People who don't know Jesus see God as vengeful and legalistic and petty. And ultimately they end up running away from a God they don't even know. I remember hearing the story of a witch doctor in Indonesia. It was a very powerful witch doctor worked uh, under the influence of very powerful demonic forces and would actually do this spectacle um, to mock Christ. Every year, he would have thousands of people from all the surrounding villages in Indonesia uh, out near Jakarta come around and, uh, and witness the spectacle. And what he would do under this demonic power and this demonic influence is that he would cut open his own gut and take out his own intestines and bite them and die. And three days later, he would come back to life as a mocking under demonic power of what Christ has done. And he did this year after year after year, deceiving people, leading them away from Jesus, outright going, going against who Jesus is. And, uh, and then one night, one night, Jesus appears to him in a dream. And Jesus could say anything to this witch doctor who has misled so many. But these are the words that Jesus said to the witch doctor, and these are the words that changed his life forever. In this dream, Jesus stands in his bedroom and looks at him and says, I am Jesus, and I love you. I am Jesus, and I love you. 
eyes open up, I see the glory of God. It's in his love. It's in the power of his love. It's in how he can speak to my heart. It's how he addresses. The first thing that Jesus presents is not how powerful he is, but in how much he loves, because that's what God's power looks like. We have seen his glory full of grace and truth. And I wanna just say that grace and truth are not opposed to one another. People like to try and balance them out like two ends of the scale, as if uh, truth and then you have grace, like that would make grace untruth, right? It would make it a lie. So you have lies and truth. No, grace and truth are part of the same thing. God's grace is his truth. It is who he is. It is the word of God. So that's God saying, this is me. This is who I am. This is my glory. This is the overwhelmingly powerful, life-changing truth about God, that he turns rebels into lovers and God-haters into servants. And the only thing that is able to do that is the power of God's love. It's the goodness of God that causes people to repent. It's the most powerful weapon in our spiritual warfare. You wanna change a city? Love the people in the city. It's by far our most effective tool of evangelism. It's the glory of God. It's his love. In fact, Jesus said it was the identifying factor of Christianity. He said, by this will all men know that you are my disciples. This is how they're gonna know. If you love each other. That's how people will know this this person belongs to Jesus because he loves. It says in that verse that through Moses came the law a set of rules, a legalistic system that you had to work, that you had to adhere to, where the emphasis was on you and your efforts to earn God's love. But he says, but through Jesus came grace and truth. So powerful. The Bible says that God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's the greatest statement here on Valentine's Day when everything is about love and people are seeking to find out what love actually really is, the greatest statement of love ever was made when the father sent his son to die for sinners who had turned their back on him. That's what love looks like. Before Jesus went to the cross, he said to his disciples, no greater love has any man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. We've seen his glory. We've seen his love. This is what separates Christianity from every other religion. In which other religion have you heard about a creator who in seeing the disobedience and the sinfulness of his creation, of his people, instead of consuming them in judgment, takes on their form, becomes like one of them, subjects himself to their rejection and dies for them on a cross. There's no other religion that even comes close to anything like that, where God himself dies for his creation. It's what separates Christianity from every other religion. Simply put, the defining factor which separates Christianity from every other religion is this, grace. It's grace. You don't work for it. He gives it to you as a free gift. That's what makes it different. 
We have beheld his glory. We've seen his glory full of grace and truth. This is the gospel. I want, if you're confused about this this morning, grace is the gospel. I'm gonna show you this in two quick verses. Acts 20, verse 24. Paul writes here, or Paul uh, speaks here, and he says, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. Paul, what ministry did you receive from the Lord Jesus? To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's the gospel. It's the grace of God because it's Jesus. It's God. In Galatians 1 verse 6 and 7, Paul writing here now, he writes the, the church in Galatia and he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in what? In the grace of Christ. And are turning to a different gospel. He says, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort. Some translations say, pervert the gospel of Christ. Any Christian theology or statement or declaration that tells you that your standing with God is based on your performance or based on your ability to keep certain principles and certain rules are one thing, according to Paul, a perversion of the only gospel. Because the gospel is the gospel of grace. I'm astonished that you so quickly turn away. We do that. Oh, Jesus saved me. He loves me. I felt his love. I felt his goodness. What must I do? What must I do? Otherwise, Jesus is not going to love me anymore. Um, I better just start doing all of these things because if I don't do them consistently, I can't even get baptized. I, I shouldn't even show my face in church. I can't pray for anybody because I, no, don't turn away so quickly from the gospel of grace, from the one who called you in the grace of Christ. So there's only one gospel. John 1 verse 19, we're just moving through, we're skipping a few bits here, but we, we're moving through John chapter number one and John 1 verse 19 says, and this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the paths of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. He says, I am not the Christ. I am not Jesus. How many of you know that we can't save anybody? Adrian can't save anybody. Adrian cannot even save himself. We do not have the ability to save people. Our lives are not perfect. We're flawed. We're, we're imperfect. We, we often make mistakes. Our church isn't perfect. It's never going to be. But what we can be, as the recipients of grace, as ones who have seen his glory, what we can be, is a voice crying out in the wilderness. 
a voice crying out in the wilderness saying, make straight the paths of the Lord. That's, a, that's a, a quote from Isaiah chapter 40 where it says, make straight the paths of the Lord, make a highway in the desert. The idea there is, is that as they traveled through the desert, there would be stones and obstacles blocking people's way to God. And the encouragement is to comfort God's people and to make a highway for people to get to God. Make a path, make a way, remove the obstacles, take everything out of the way from getting people to meet with God. And that's what we do in the city. We cry out like a voice in this barren, dry, desperate land. We cry out that there is a God and his name is Jesus and we have seen his glory and we're gonna remove every obstacle to help you meet with him. That's the mandate on the church, is to make Jesus known. Our message is not, hey, come and be like us because we're so perfect. It's, hey, come and behold Jesus with us. Come and see his glory. So we're called to be a voice crying in the wilderness, not settling in our Christian comforts. Please, church. Please, church, let's never do that. As Anchor Church, can we never do that? Can we never just settle in our Christian comforts and our Christian cliches, critiquing the pastor's preach and evaluating the band's performance and talking about what we felt was good and what we felt was bad? But let's be a church that cries out truth and grace and the love of God over a dry and empty and barren city that is blind for not knowing Jesus. Let's make a highway in this desert. Let's make a highway in this desert. Help people to meet with God. It says in, in verse 29, John 1, 29, it says, the next day, John, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's our message. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God is this picture of innocence. The Lamb is considered as a symbol of innocence. And John cries out, this innocent Lamb is the one that has come as the spotless lamb to, to be offered up as a sacrifice for our sins. Just like when Abraham was about to sacrifice Isaac and the angel stopped him and said, don't, I will provide a ram for the sacrifice. And there was a ram caught in the thicket. God provided for the sacrifice. Just like when, when Israel were in Egypt and the plagues were hitting Egypt and the angel of death was passing over all the land of Egypt and they said, take a lamb and, and slaughter it and, and put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost so that the angel of death can pass by. Just like in Israel, they were given the laws to sacrifice on the day of atonement for all of their sins. A lamb spotless without blemish had to be sacrificed for their sins. And they had to make those sacrifices, Hebrews tells us, year after year after year after year. Because they could only ever cover our sins, not ever remove them. But when Jesus showed up, behold, this is the Lamb of God. The one who came to take away the sins of the world. How dishonoring is it when we won't believe that God has forgiven us. When we want to make up for our own sins, we dishonor the lamb who gave himself to take away our sins. 
We declare God, as scripture says, a liar. No, you're lying. You didn't really take away my sins. No, he did through the Lamb of God. We see his glory. We see the Lamb as though he had been slain. This is why, uh, some of you may know the story, but this is why I named my boys, my twin boys, Leo and Jude. My wife and I weren't able to, to have kids. We then had our first boy, Eli, Eli John, which means God is gracious. We were like, wow, God really is gracious. You know, sometimes you, you believe it until you have to believe it, and then you have to believe it. And, uh, and, and, and he was born, we were just so overwhelmed. God is gracious. But we wanted more than one child, and so we had to trust God again. We're like, whoa, can we do this again? Can we trust God even more? Can we, can we ask of, for more? Can we believe for more? And God spoke to me so clearly out of Revelation chapter number five. In Revelation five, you have God sitting on the throne with a scroll in his hand. And the scroll is written on the front and on the back. It's written on the front and the back because it is God's complete plan for redemption. Nothing can be added to it. It's, it's, it's how he is going to redeem the world. And everybody is in turmoil because they say there is no one found in heaven or on earth that is worthy to open the redemption, this plan of God to save all people and to, and to turn the world around. Nobody is worthy. And so John, the same John, who wrote this book, who wrote this gospel, he falls down on the floor and he begins to weep because he realizes I'm lost. If God doesn't save me, if God doesn't redeem me, I am lost and he weeps. And then the angel comes or one of the elders comes and taps him on the shoulder and says, John, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed and he is worthy to break the seals and to open the scroll. The lion of the tribe of Judah is victorious. And John gets up and he's gonna look around because he can't wait to look full into the face of this incredibly powerful lion of Judah. And he turns around, you know what he sees? A lamb as though it had been slain. That's the victory of God. That's the power of God. It's his grace. It's him giving himself up for us. And that's why I called my boys, I then had twin boys, and I called them Leo and Jude, Lion of Judah, because I understood the grace of God and how powerful it is to reach into our desperation, those desperate moments. Guys, don't wrong-size God this morning. Don't make your problems bigger than your God. And I think about my friends with that little girl of theirs, four years old, facing stage four cancer. This is a battle of faith for them. But we serve the lion of the tribe of Judah who has prevailed. He was the lamb and we have seen his glory. And so we can trust our God for great things. In John 1 verse 35, it says, the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. Every time Jesus walks by, John just says it again. Hey, everybody, this is it. This is the one. This is the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. That's what happens when we stand with people and we declare, this is Jesus. This is what he's like. Behold, this is the Lamb of God. 
All of a sudden, people just, oh, they're drawn to him. They follow Jesus. So these two disciples, they follow Jesus. They go and stay with him. And in John 1 verse 40, it says, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah. We found him. Come on, isn't that what we're called to do as a church? Andrew, he, oh, this is the Messiah. I'm following him. He stays with Jesus and he recognizes who Jesus is. So he runs to his brother. He runs to the, the, those closest to him and he says, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus and Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas which means Peter. Andrew brings his brother Simon to Jesus. And in a moment, Jesus changes his destiny. More so then than now, a name in, in biblical times represented a person's destiny. What happens when we declare to people, behold the Lamb of God? What happens when we run to our brothers and our sisters and we say, we have found the Messiah? What happens when we bring people to Jesus? What happens when we bring people into a moment where they can encounter Jesus? Their destiny, their eternal destiny gets changed. Peter goes from being a fisherman to becoming the head apostle of the church, the leader of the church in the first century changed destiny. Why? Because Andrew heard someone else say, that's Jesus, followed him, fetched his brother, brought him to Jesus. That's what we're here to do in the city. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who has taken away your sins. Here's what I'm getting at this morning. In the same way that Jesus came to reveal who the Father is to those of us who had never seen him, who sat in darkness, God's calling upon our lives is to go out into a dark world and to echo that message. We bring people, we reveal who Jesus is to this city. We reveal through our love, through our giving, through our preaching, through our worship, through everything that God has ordained us to do and called us to do, we show the city who Jesus is. We reveal the Son just like the Son revealed the Father. To show the world what God is like. The Bible says, that Jesus had the ministry, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself and we have now received that same ministry of reconciliation. God will change the eternal destiny of people's lives. I don't know if we understand the privilege that we have here as a church, that we get to be a part of that. We get to bring people into this space and see Jesus change lives. That is by far the most rewarding thing about what we do is to see lives changed. You're no longer Simon, you're now Peter. When you reach just one person, when you bring just one person to church, when you share the gospel with just one person, you never know how many people will ultimately be reached because of your faithfulness. You never know how many people will be blessed on the other side of your obedience. 
I'll tell you a quick story about a friend of mine that I led to the Lord and was really nervous about it. I was 17 years old. I was on rugby tour in Italy and I was walking with a friend. And we were actually a group of guys walking around Milan. It was our last night um, in Italy. We were walking around the streets of Milan and we were kind of doing uh, circles. And every time we came past the hotel, as it got later and later, more and more guys would go to bed. Okay, guys, going to bed now, going to bed now, whatever. We were flying out the next morning. And, uh, and, and, and kind of the group got smaller and smaller and smaller until it was just me and this one friend of mine called Kiron. And Kiron and I are now walking on our own through the streets of Milan. And, uh, you know, somehow, as God would have it, the conversation comes to the gospel, comes to Jesus, comes to who God is and what God has done. And I spend some time uh, as a 17-year-old talking to Kiron about who Jesus is, the real Jesus, the Jesus full of grace and truth, not the judgmental, angry, petty God who he thought he was, but, but, but the true Jesus full of grace and truth. And from him, we received grace upon grace. And I start sharing the grace of God with Kiron, and, and, uh, and I can see that God is busy speaking to him. But I'm only 17 years old, and I'm really, really nervous about asking this friend of mine if he wants me to pray with him to receive Jesus uh, into his life. I'm, I'm nervous about it. I don't know why. So I, I kind of do the silly thing that we sometimes do as young Christians is that I ask God for a sign. <laughs> and, I, and, and I tell God what kind of sign it has to be. So we're walking, as we're walking along the street, there's a, there's a petrol station and I, and, I, and I see a car standing in front of one of the petrol pumps and I, I pray and I say, God, if you want me to pray with Kiron, won't you let the lights of that car flash? Just let them flash. Then I know if, that, if those lights flash, I must pray for Kiron. And God is like, what do I have to do to get you to pray for this guy, you know? And as I get closer, I realize, because I gave God some time, uh, but as I got closer, I realize there's no one in the car. The car's empty. The guy's not in the car. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I really feel like I should pray for him. But how are these lights going to flash if there's no one in the car? And as we're almost about to pass the car, a guy comes running out of the shop, jumps into his car. And when he starts it, the lights flash. And I'm like, I okay, okay. So I turn to him and I'm like, okay, would you like me to pray for you to meet Jesus? And he's like, yeah, that'd be great. I was like, is that, okay, it's that easy, you know, like, so we walk over to this bench. By this point, it was after midnight. We sit down on this bench in the middle of Milan, uh, just after midnight, and I pray for him to receive Jesus. And I was so worried about whether he really understood it. When we got back to the hotel, I was like, do you want my Bible? Do you want to read my Bible a little bit? Like, Jesus? And he's like, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. And um, it's just been an amazing story. So Kiron, uh, after school, uh, that was his last year in school. And towards the end of school, a couple of months later, he had read the entire Bible. He had become so passionate about Jesus that he literally sold everything that he personally owned. He had a car uh, and, uh, you know, whatever he had, he sold it to raise money to go up into Africa and to just do missionary work with no plans, just, just traveled into Africa until he ran out of money. And then he came home. And while he was on that trip, he met with a couple of guys who introduced him some other, to some other guys. And he ended up moving up to Zambia to start up a base of the Overland Missions. For those of you that were with us last year, Phil Smithhurst is the guy who started it. Kiron moved up to Zambia 
and built, physically built the base in Zambia. And they started a missionary training school that every three months has between 30 to 50 students coming out from all over the world to be trained in missionary work. And then they are sent out to over 15 nations all over the world doing five-year periods of missionary work within a nation all from a 17-year, two 17-year-olds sitting down on a bench in Milan going, can I pray this prayer with you? And over the years, the, the, the hundred, we can't even say how many people have been touched because of the training that Kieran has done and the missionaries that have been sent out all over the world. Right now, him and his wife, he married a, a, a girl who's also a missionary. They continued living in Zambia for years. They've just moved to the States for a couple of years and because they're planning on a new mission out in Thailand um, in, in about two years' time. They're starting a new base in the middle of Thailand to reach the locals there and to share the gospel. You never know how many people will be touched on the other side of your obedience. The first thing that you need to do is you need to see Jesus. You need to know who he is. You need to experience his grace. You need to feel the fabric of his truth, the, the person that he is. You need to be in that relationship with God. And when you've seen him and your blindness has been dispelled, you'll stand like John did and say, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And on the other side of our obedience, thousands will be touched for the gospel. It all starts with seeing Jesus and knowing the heart of the Father. And that's why John wrote this gospel. He's like, I want you to get this. I'm gonna end this morning with a quote from Brendan Manning. I mentioned him before. He wrote a book called The Ragamuffin Gospel, which I, reckon, uh, I recommend everybody should read. Um, but he, he says this. He says, in the past couple of years, I have preached the gospel to the financial community in Wall Street, New York City, the airmen and women of the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, a thousand positions in Nairobi. I've been in churches in Bangor, Maine, Miami, Chicago, St. Louis, Seattle, San Diego. And honest, the God of so many Christians I meet is a God who is too small for me because he is not the God of the word. He is not the God revealed by it in Jesus Christ who this moment comes right to your seat and says, I have a word for you. I know your whole life story. I know every skeleton in your closet. I know every moment of sin, shame, dishonesty, and degraded love that has darkened your past. Right now, I know your shallow faith, your feeble prayer life, your inconsistent discipleship, and my word is this. I dare you to trust that I love you just as you are and not as you should be, because you're never going to be as you should be. I dare you to believe in the glory of God, which is the love and the grace that he has for you. We have seen his glory. We have beheld his glory. We have seen the Father, and what we saw was filled with grace and it was filled with truth. Can we go ahead and thank Jesus together this morning?